every generation there is a chosen podcast. It alone will analyze the subtext, the allegory, and the clever Whedon-esque dialogue. It is Conversations with Dead People. Welcome to Conversations with Dead People. I'm your host, Paul Smith, and each week, give or take, I'm joined by guests from the worlds of fandom and academia, authors and educators, to discuss two to four episodes of Joss Whedon's critically acclaimed series, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and its spin-off series, Angel. Uh, talking with me tonight is first-time guest, first time she's been here, Stephanie Graves. Uh, Ooh. First-timer. Um, by the way, Stephanie or Steph, or, or what, what do you go by? I mean, I pretty much answer to anything, so... <laughs> Okay. Um, at, at Starbucks, I say Steph because it's less to mess up. Right, right. <laughs> I may, I've known some Stephanies and I always fall back on Steph. So that may happen. I just wanted to make sure that's not offensive. I will take no offense. <laughs> All right, excellent. So uh, Stephanie is a PhD student at Georgia State University in rhetoric and composition. Oh, man. Um, that makes me nervous. You're telling me. <laughs> uh, she's the winner of the 2014 Mr. Pointy Award for her paper, You Really Think I'm Pretty? The Problem of Gender Representation in the Avengers, uh, which could potentially get me in some trouble if we end up talking about that too much. We'll see where the conversation goes. Um, and a contrib contributor to the forthcoming Joss Whedon versus the horror tradition, which will be edited by Lorna Jowett and Christopher, I've never said his name aloud, Woofter? Woofter, yeah. Woofter, okay. Uh, president and vice president, respectively, of the Wheaton Studies Association. So, uh, Steph, thank you so much for joining me. How's it going? It's great. Thank you so much for inviting me. Uh, the podcast is fantastic, and I'm super excited to get really nerdy and talk about some Buffy. <laughs> thank you. The check's in the mail. <laughs> um, all right. So, speaking of uh, being nerdy for Buffy, what's uh, what's your story, Steph? How'd you get into Buffy the Vampire Slayer? So this is the part where I admit uh, I, something kind of embarrassing. Oh. Um, I loved the film. No, that's that's cool. I loved the film too. I don't um, know. I don't know if I still do. <laughs> yeah, I, I haven't actually seen it in probably fifteen years. But like a friend and I had a copy of it, and we would watch it like every weekend, and we were obsessed. So that was like my high school years. And then when I found out there was a show gonna be based on it i was like yes uh so i'm one of the weirdos who was there like you know and this was back in the days of vcr so like i had my tape in and like my finger set to hit the record button and i've been watched it since the pilot aired awesome um i was obsessed with it immediately um and it was back in the day too like it was it was that weird like time where the internet was kind of starting to be a thing right right um, it wasn't really yet, but like, it just was really important to me. Um, and a few other friends that kind of watched it, we were sort of far flung, but I remember we would like, if one of us missed an episode or our, you know, VCR, like didn't record the programming, like I messed up or whatever, like we would mail VHS tapes back and forth to each other. 
So I'm really dating myself here. <laughs> but, I mean, the show, the show, uh, you can't help but date yourself. The show premiered in 97. We were, we were stuck with what we had. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, that was, that was me sitting there and I had, I, my mom was, at some point threw them all out, but I wish yeah. that I still had them cause they had like all the commercials and stuff and, um, it would have been like a really nice time capsule, but that's how I get into Buffy. And then if it weren't for Buffy, I probably wouldn't be doing what I'm doing now, which is sort of like studying television scholarship. Um, and I went to my bachelor's degrees in theater, but I did a minor in English at Middle Tennessee State University where David Lavery taught. Mm. And I sort of just like wandered into one of his pop culture survey classes and he loved Buffy. He had, I think he had like just found it because it, I think that was like during season four or five maybe. And so we were, um, I wrote a paper about Buffy for his class and I didn't know before that, that you could do that kind of thing. <laughs> so, you know, like 19 years later, here I am. <laughs> that, uh, so a lot of stories like that where people discovered because of Buffy that or actually, I mean, maybe it's a case of Buffy sort of created. I don't, I, I don't know. I, there was probably pop culture study before Buffy the Vampire Slayer, but just because it happens to be something that I'm focused on, I, I tend to kind of imagine that the world pre-Buffy didn't really <laughs> didn't really focus on pop culture the way it does post-Buffy. Yeah, and I think that probably Buffy, like in terms of especially television scholarship, like I think that sort of the wealth of scholarship about it probably helped legitimize television studies in a way. I mean, like stuff had already started to happen about like Twin Peaks and like mm -hmm. other like, quality TV, but like more has been written academically about Buffy than any other TV show, I think at this point. So, so yeah. All right. Excellent. Um, yeah, man, I wish I, I, I have said a few words about David Lavery on this podcast before, but uh, I sadly did not know him very well. I knew him uh, very briefly and only through uh, by going to the Slayage conferences. But uh, what little exposure I had to David, he was a lovely person. And I, I genuinely wish that I had had more opportunity to spend time with him and get to know him. He was wonderful. And I ended up getting my master's and he directed my thesis, um, which I kind of feel like sort of like weirdly name droppy saying that but he like he was just such a delightful human being like he really wanted his students to be successful he would like introduce you to people and try to get you publishing opportunities and he was just like so welcoming um so he's really he was a force to be reckoned with and he's greatly missed for sure yeah um all right. Well, before we start heading into bummer territory, <laughs> let's uh, let me give the uh, spoiler. Speaking of bummer territory, spoiler warning time. Uh, Conversations with dead people is not a typical rewatch and review podcast. We're going to be exploring the plots, characters and themes of each episode in depth and within the context of the series as a whole. That means spoilers and lots of them. So I recommend if you haven't already watched Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Angel the series all the way through at least once. Press pause on this silly little podcast and go do that now. Um, I, I think you'll probably get more out of this podcast if you've seen the shows. But, hey, you do you. I'm no judgment here. This is a judgment-free zone. Uh, anyways, with that out of the way, Stephanie, if you're ready, let's go to work.
Absolutely. All right. So this time around, we're talking about three episodes, and we are we we have we have happily I will say happily and maybe we can dissect why I say that but happily we have left the high school years behind and we are moving <laughs> into the adult world now uh we're into season four so today we're discussing uh, 401 the freshman 402 living conditions and 403 the harsh light of day uh Buffy and the gang have left childish things behind supposedly <laughs> and, have, and have entered the world of higher education uh at UC Sunnydale, or most of them have anyways. So <laughs> Stephanie, you're the guest. I'm going to let you go first. What are your thoughts on, on well, season? Well, I'm curious why you're excited about leaving the high school years behind. <laughs> I knew that. You seem to feel strongly about it. <laughs> I knew that wasn't going to just fly I can't by. let that lie. <laughs> uh, just because I had a, I, I, I had a very unique uh, adolescent, preteen, teen childhood experience um my high school like everybody hated high school people that didn't hate high school i'm i'm really uncomfortable around those people <laughs> if, yeah, you, if you didn't hate high school something was wrong with you i think um yeah but uh but my high school experience was um i lived a very nomadic existence so i never stayed at one school for any length of time so i had the Actually, the fish out of water experience that Buffy has in these episodes, in the freshman uh, in particular, um, that's kind of been my entire life, but particularly my high school career was spent going from school to school. So like every three or four months, uh, it I had the whole I'm the new kid in school thing all over again. That sounds terrible. Yeah, no, it, it wasn't pleasant. And I didn't have the excuse of, I, you know, a military family to fall back on. It's just that. <laughs> my my family was freaking nomadic and we moved a lot and anyways so yeah i had uh i didn't enjoy high school um for all of the usual reasons plus that and so yeah. um even though there were great stories to be mined from that experience in the first 3 seasons i there was a certain um uh, part of me that didn't identify with a lot of the high school stuff like I never, I mentioned this on the podcast, never went to a single high school dance or prom or any of that stuff. Um, I was never involved in any of the high school, like the bigger high school social events or rites of passages or anything like that. So, you know, in, in some sense, all of that stuff was all just fiction to me. Watching gotcha. it, watching it in Buffy. <laughs> well, here in the freshman, you see how weird that transition is out of high school, though, for Buffy. Yeah. Um, and like season four it's one of those weird seasons where the overall arc is perhaps not the best um, <laughs> as we say uh, but some of the episodes in the season are like my favorite of the entire show um, and especially like Restless the season finale is my favorite episode of Buffy period um, but season four is weird in that it's like the show having to like find this place where it reinvents itself and sort of changes its tactics. Um, and you see like that playing out in the character of Buffy too, because she's, you know, it's the, you know, big fish, little pond, little fish, big pond sort of dichotomy there where she's like really disoriented by being in college. And she's like further alienated by seeing Willow just sort of take to it naturally. Um, and Willow's got that great line about like how, uh, 
the collective intelligence of of higher learning like is a penetrating force thrusts into her and (laughs) yeah that was an awkward conversation (laughs) bless willow's heart (laughs) i'm all for i'm all for spurty knowledge yeah Um, yeah um which is like such a wonderful example of like how the show just sort of inserts that that naughtiness into it where it's just like (laughs) um because i will always laugh at that like yeah (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I will never be a sophisticated person who doesn't think that that's hilarious. Um, but yeah, so it's it's like a, a tonal shift in the show um, coming out of season three and into four. Um, it's also weird, like, so in the beginning of Buffy, Cordelia talks about how it's a one Starbucks town and it's right. like, you know, <laughs> it's like the bad part of town is one block from the good part of town. Right. Um, and then in the freshman, like, it's like, but actually there's this like giant university. That's a pretty, that's a pretty big campus. It's a pretty big campus for a one Starbucks town. Yeah. And you, you you know, like strange that none of the children in high school ever went to a college party. Seems peculiar. Um, Well, there was, there was one college party, wasn't there? Yeah, there was the one, but it's still kind of like. And, and you see the same weird thing happen in Veronica Mars when she goes to yeah. Hearst yeah. that like was never really referenced except for a couple of times throughout yeah. the high school years. So it was just kind of that like, oh, we need to create like a big space without putting everyone in an entirely new environment. Like when Saved by the Bell all went off to college together, which was, you know, strained credulity a bit. Yeah. Well. It's the hell. In an otherwise entirely naturalistic show. Of course. Yeah. Um, no. <laughs> they were so careful with all of the other details. I'm surprised right, this right. one slipped through the cracks. Um, I, if I'm not mistaken, UC Sunnydale was shot primarily at UCLA. Is that, is that right? Do you know? Yeah, I think that's true. I'm pretty sure. Um, I, in fact, I've, I think for, for the season premiere for the freshman, I think it was all, or, or, I won't say all, it was largely on location. So exterior and I think even interior shots like that, the great shot of Buffy and Willow walking into the gigantic library. (laughs) Um, I'm pretty sure that was like filmed on location. That was a real, that was the real UCLA library. Yeah. Um, That's that. I don't think they made that on a soundstage for sure. Yeah. I I think most of the going forward, I think most of it is um, they still use exterior shots, but I think all the interiors are probably sets, but um, yeah. Yeah. that shot when they go into the library is such a great like sort of way to set up how small Buffy feels mm-hmm. in this environment because it's just this like sort of soaring space with these big like um, vaulted arches of overhead and Willow is so excited about like all the books you know we had a crappy collection except for the occult uh, so yeah. she's excited about all these books and Buffy's just like oh this place that's been home for me is now completely unfamiliar uh, it's so tiny kind of in that shot uh, it's framed really nicely it was interesting i watched uh on this rewatch i noticed um it clearly was a library i mean you, there were a couple shots of the stat like you could see the stacks you could see books and and there was the shot obviously of them of her knocking books on riley's head um but the sort of establishing shot of the library was all uh worms eye view like it was all looking up at the the columns and the arched ceiling and all that stuff and there wasn't actually there were a few shots there where i was like that doesn't even look like a library it looks like a like an auditorium or something it looks like <laughs> i don't know a cathedral 
Yeah, it does not look like my college library. <laughs> For sure. Yeah. Um, let's see. What do, what else do we have here? So you talked about how season four, the the, the, over, the overarching plot, the trajectory of the season, maybe debatably is not the best that the series ever has. <laughs> I don't know. I'm... I remember being pretty darn fond of season four. We'll see on this rewatch where I come down on it, but I remember being really fond of it. And I think the biggest reason for that is specifically is possibly one of the reasons a lot of people had a problem with season four. And that is the, the very intentional yanking the rug out from under, not just the characters, but the audience as well. We've had three, three seasons to get used to a certain dynamic, a certain, certain status quo and season four is all about completely uh, upturning all of that, um, including making Buffy feel sort of a little bit pushed out of the group uh, by the fact that uh, Willow and Oz seem very, very much at home and clearly have the ability right now to have a social existence that doesn't orbit directly around Buffy. Yeah. Um, she feels a little bit pushed out by Joyce, who obviously has filled her room with uh, very bizarre packing crates. Yeah, with crates that I can only assume uh, are filled with all sorts of demonic relics, ancient mummies, and other evil plot devices. Since that's, well, that's the... all she ever brought home. Yeah, that's all she ever had at her, at the museum, at the the gallery, or whatever. Um, and then, uh, very clearly, she feels sort of pushed out, and it's an inten intentionally. Uh, she feels a little bit pushed out and kind of abandoned by Giles. Yeah. Um, um, and then he has that great moment at the end of the episode where he's like, I'm so sorry. I was wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but he's, he's very busy being a gentleman of leisure. Um, <laughs> which is great. Which is great. <laughs> I, lo I love how midlife crisis -y they go <laughs> into yeah. Giles, like listlessness of not having a vocation anymore. Yeah. Um, he's a mod jogger. <laughs> But he's living in a really great house. So the courtyard outside, um, it's very cool. Yeah. Is that, okay. That is supposed to be the same place that he lived in the first three I seasons, think, right? Yeah. And I think they just give you more of it because they're like, well, we can't just have everybody standing in his tiny living room the entire time they're hanging out with him. Yeah. So it seems like they give it more of more of an exterior. It's um, weird. Um, uh, I don't know that I'd ever given it a lot of thought before, but maybe it's just what I was talking about that season four feels so completely different from the previous three seasons. I, in the back of my mind, I always thought that this was a new location for Giles, but I've, on this watch, I was like, I think this is supposed to be like, why would he have a new place? His place, yeah. didn't, his place didn't burn down. Why would he move <laughs> this? This I think is supposed to be the same place. Yeah, I think it is. And then, but he's just like, now that he's, you know, he's sort of homeless by not having a library. Yeah. Um, so we have to like see him somewhere until, <laughs> until he gets the magic shop, in which case his place kind of goes away again a little bit. And I really like Olivia. I can't remember how much of her we get. I think we see her again in Hush and then she splits. Okay. So <laughs> we don't, not very long. We don't, we don't get a lot of her, but. Yeah, because Buffy's uncomfortable with it because Giles is very, very old and it's yeah. gross. <laughs> yeah, that's, 
<laughs> which rewatching and, and realizing now, like I'm far closer to Giles's age mm-hmm. than Buffy's, which at the time that I was initially watching this, I was closer. I was close to Buffy's age. Do we know uh, what, do you want to venture a guess what his age is supposed to be at this point? I mean, I remember thinking he seemed old and now he seems like a peer. Um, <laughs> He's probably mid forties, oh, early. See, 40s. damn it! I knew you were going to say that. I'm, I'm creeping up on fifty. That, that hurts. That hurts a lot. <laughs> damn it. Well, no, I mean, like I, I, he seems like somebody who is about this. I feel about that that age at this point. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, <laughs> it's, it, it is a mystery because I think they just want him to be vague old guy. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's just one of those things rewatching it where it's like, oh yeah, now I'm old too. <laughs> I've grown older and he's stayed the same age. <laughs> so in addition to the new sort of just the new feel in general and the new setting, um, we get, well, there's the new opening credits, of course we should. Yes. I suppose we should mention the new opening credits because it's always, it's always fun to try and spot <laughs> the new uh, images that flash by our eyes um, and to try and place them where they come from. I, I, some of the stuff I recognized and have a vague idea where it's coming from, but a lot of it, I'm like, eh, I don't know where that, I'm, I assume it's from season four, but I don't remember what that is. Yeah. And but I like, did see, I did see the new Halloween costumes in there. <laughs> yeah. They're in there. Um, what else do we get? Um, I can't remember, but yeah, there are like a lot of bits from Giles, season four. Giles with a chainsaw. <laughs> Which is from fear itself. Yeah. Um, which I think is like coming up right after these episodes. I think it is. Yeah. Um, so yeah, but yeah, it's like, it's weird how those scenes in the intro almost become kind of spoilery because <laughs> I remember watching it and being like, I haven't seen that. Um, so it's like, you know, they're obviously working ahead. So they've included in the intro, but yeah, there, there are more shots of spike than I remembered. Um, in the new title sequence. Uh, at least one of them is an old shot of Spike. It's from, I don't remember the name of the episode. Was it, uh, was it oh, Lover's Walk? Is that what it was from? I, I don't know. It was from when uh, when Spike and Buffy and Angel were all gotten that fight at the magic shop. Um, so one of, we see a tiny clip from that. <laughs> uh, but then there are at least there's at least one, I think maybe two shots of Spike that come from at some point in this season. And so. Which, you know, I'm always happy about. <laughs> no, that's I'm thrilled by that. But you're but that was kind of a little bit of a spoiler. Just. Uh, yeah. I don't know. If, I mean, we get to him in these episodes, so it wasn't that big of a spoiler, but still. <laughs> um, but like for the first episode, you're like, what? Yeah. I thought he was like gone. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so new vibe, new setting, new opening credits and new characters for better or worse. So now we get to, now we enter the world where, um, my, you talked about having unconventional or unpopular opinions. I'm, I'm really good at it. Okay. Well, let's discuss Riley. Cause Hey guys, there's Riley. We get to meet Riley in this uh, episode. Ah, oh, man, poor Riley. <laughs> Okay. There's that... nothing about Riley that's not just kind of like a solid dude. I mean, except for the part where he gets addicted to getting bitten by vampires, but whatever. Like that's all a reaction to his emotional turmoil. Yeah. But man, people hate Riley. And I think it's just 
largely motivated by his replacing Angel in yeah. Buffy's love life. I agree. I completely agree. I, I, you know, I don't, I wouldn't say that I'm a super fan of Riley. Like, I don't love him, but. Yeah, I'm, he, I'm not going to be a Riley defender, but yeah, he's he, sort of milk toast. Yeah, he, in my opinion, he does not deserve the level of vitriol that he gets. And by and large, I feel like his arc is pretty tragic. Yeah. I mean, so. he really kind of gets screwed over by Buffy. Yeah. Um, and I feel a little bad for the dude. Um, he's sort of, I know like he's portrayed as kind of like good old farm boy, salt of the earth guy, but he really sort of is that guy until like all this other darker stuff kind of like takes its toll on him over the season. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't have the beef with Riley that a lot of people do. I know it's a popular pastime. <laughs> um, what about uh, Professor Walsh? I don't like Professor Walsh. <laughs> <laughs> now, wait, now, do you not like her because you're not supposed to like her? Or do you, are you like not a fan of the character? I, I, I mean, she sets her, so sets herself up upon first introduction as wholly unlikable. Um, you know, she's a little like, making the joke and being self-aware where, you know, she's like the name that my TAs call me behind my back, evil bitch monster from hell, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, is sort of like, <laughs> Ooh, thanks Freddie for shadowing. Um, <laughs> you know, she's just, she's just sort of like, so, you know, I mean, I want to say militant, but of course, duh, she's the head right, of the yeah. initiative. Yeah. Um, but yeah, she's just never being likable is not on her agenda. That's very true. I um, I would say that I both dislike Professor Walsh for the reasons that we are eventually supposed to dislike Professor Professor Walsh, and also I'm just not particularly a fan. <laughs> like I don't, I'm I'm I, I like the initiative storyline, but I, I don't know Professor Walsh's role in it. You you have to have that character to have the initiative storyline. I get. I don't know. I'm just not a. I'm not particularly a fan of Professor Walsh. It it was interesting though. I had forgotten that she is introduced, even though she gives that line, "Evil bitch monster of death." I think actually is what she calls herself. Um, but her introduction comes immediately after Buffy getting kicked out of Professor uh, Rygert's class, the pop culture class, um, yes. <laughs> which was. One of the things I love that these early season four episodes do is they take several opportunities to play up, to introduce characters that after, after watching the show for three seasons, we have been trained. We have been operantly conditioned. Let's discuss some operant conditioning. I'm a, (laughs) I'm a retired zookeeper. I know all about operant conditioning. We have been conditioned to look for characters like professor Rygert and, uh, poor Eddie that she bumps into on the quad or whatever. Like we, we are trained. There's my cat. I told you we'd hear her at some (laughs) point on the podcast. Um, We've been trained to expect those characters to be the setup for the monster of the week. Right. And it's just interesting that uh, professor Rygert or Rygert, I don't know how to say it, but that that professor, uh, was so like just openly like evil and demonic, but he's just a college professor. He's just a dick. He's not a demon. <laughs> he is a dick. And, uh, and it's, it's terrible. Like it makes me, it, it hurts me 
I, I, it feels like a personal attack. You know, the pop culture professor is yeah. the one who's like in front of a giant lecture hall of students being a jerk. Yeah, that is unfortunate. <laughs> but I thought it was weird that Professor Walsh is introduced right after that. So they could have used that as a way of, of uh, diverting or, or what is the word I'm looking for? Like they could have... Yeah, contrasting or whatever. They could have set Professor Walsh up to seem like the much more pleasant. And I guess she I guess she is more pleasant. She doesn't kick Buffy out of the class, but I, I don't know. Professor, and maybe it's just that I know who Professor Walsh is, and I know that she's the evil bitch monster of death. Um, but it didn't seem like that much of a contrast to me going forward. Yeah, I mean, she is at least seems to be fair whereas mm-hmm. you've seen the professor before when kicking Buffy out is very unfair yeah um he's enjoying sort of torturing her in that moment and I uh, guess I guess I guess she's softened a little by the fact that Riley we don't we don't know Riley very well at all at this point but he seems at least to be reasonably pleasant and friendly and he seemed genuine when Buffy was like professor Walsh isn't gonna kick me out <laughs> my phone just activated it must have heard me say siri um uh she's not going to kick me out of class and he's like uh it's not on her it's not on her schedule or whatever he said so right i mean i guess that maybe goes a little ways to to making her seem like a much more reasonable person than professor yeah. Riker. but we also know like i mean you can just tell kind of how the narrative's set up that she's going to be more of a part of the season because like Riley is her TA, mm-hmm. you know, Willow has been like talking up this woman's work. Um, so obviously like she's going to be part of the season. Whereas the other guy, you get the feeling that he's kind of a disposable, you know, he's just there to make for the narrative purpose of making Buffy feel even worse about her college experience. Yeah. thus far. So. so I name dropped Eddie a second ago. Poor um, dead Eddie. Uh, man. So this happens every once in a while where a, the show introduces a character that I, I, I know my memories aren't really solid on this show. I, I'm rediscovering a lot of stuff on this rewatch, but um, I did remember well enough that uh, I didn't remember who Eddie was, but as soon as he popped up, I remembered, Oh yeah, this guy doesn't stick around, which is unfortunate because I really, really liked him. And there every once in a while characters will pop up on the show that I'm like, Oh man, that character would have been great to keep. I wish they hadn't. I wish that Although, character like, hadn't been the monster of the week or hadn't been eaten by the monster of the week. Or... For sure. Although I, as I was rewatching it uh, before we started this, I was looking at him on the screen and I realized he would never become a series regular because his nose is too abnormal. Like he kind of has a big nose and like, I, I'm not to be superficial, but just like sort of in a Hollywood standard, he would then not make it to the, you know, repeated cast. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's fair. Uh, I mean, this show has, it's uh, well-documented issues with, with, with casting that kind of casting, <laughs> but I want to point out, do you, do you know, or did you look up or whatever? Do you know who that actor is? Um, I did not look up who he is. Uh, his name is Pedro. I'm not, I'm going to butcher the last name. I deeply apologize. Balmaceda. I think maybe is how it's pronounced. He looked vaguely familiar and I wasn't, I, I felt like it was more than me just recognizing him from seeing him on this show before. So I looked him up and he has all sorts of credits actually. But what I recognized him from was he played, uh, Oberyn Martell on Game of Thrones. 
Oh, see, I quit the Game of Thrones. <gasps> well, I don't remember. I don't remember. It was third or fourth season, maybe. Yeah, I, I sort of pieced out in season two. I was oh, like, okay. oh, there's a lot of casual violence against women. Maybe I don't need to watch this. <laughs> well, that doesn't really ever get better. Again, I, I guess I guess it does get a little better, but not better enough, I suppose. But so, anyways, well, no, cool. I love I loved his character on that show. And spoiler alert for Game of Thrones, uh, <laughs> it's I guess it's not really a spoiler. It's Game of Thrones. Nobody lives on Game of Thrones, but sadly, his character doesn't live long enough on that show either for my taste. I, apparently, I really I enjoy this guy, and I wish that he had a longer career on any given show. He's just made to be killed. I guess so. I guess. Yeah. But anyways, speaking of made to be killed, uh, oh. yeah, Sunday. Man, she is such a great character. So, okay, if I had a TARDIS... Uh-huh. And I could uh, go back in. Sounds like you know, the beginning of the, the song. If I had a TARDIS. <laughs> I, if I could travel through the wibbly wobbly, timely wimely and come out in 1999 when this was on the air and just like in the writer's room whisper, ditch Adam and keep Sunday. Mm-hmm. Like, she would have been such a more compelling seasonal villain. Um, yeah. <laughs> I'm really sad that she's, She's so cool, and then she's just gone. That is like, inter- that is interesting. I have thought before about how sort of unfortunate it is that she is so short. I mean, like, she doesn't stick around longer than she does, but I don't know if I'd ever considered her as a a replacement for Adam. Well, frankly, anything would have been better than Adam. <laughs> okay, see, that's what, kind of what I was going to ask. I don't... Any port in a storm. <laughs> I genuinely don't know what my reaction to Adam is going to be this time. I... I... <sighs> I don't remember like super disliking him. I don't remember having strong feelings about the character of Adam. And I know a lot of people do. So it'll be interesting when we get to that character to see where, which side of the line I fall on. But yeah, I'll leave that to somebody else to dissect. But <laughs> yeah, I don't like Adam as a character. You're not going to come back and discuss Adam with me. Well, I'm happy to, you know, but it would, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll break some kneecaps so I can come back on the podcast again. I'm not ashamed. <laughs> okay. All right. Excellent. Well, what, so what about Sunday is so appealing to you? She's just so wry and funny. Um, and she wails on Buffy, which, you know, like, it's not that, like I just want to see Buffy suffer, but it is interesting to see her taken down a peg. Mm-hmm. Um, because she's so used to sort of just being this superhuman person. So it, I think that it's interesting that Sunday kind of like, you know, she, she like really clocks her for like all of Buffy's insecurities, um, which is cruel, true, but it makes for great television. Um, <laughs> it really ups the drama quotient. And that, that fight, their first fight before, uh, like when Buffy gets her arm injured or whatever, yeah. Um, I have this fondness for dissecting fight choreography and stuff in all of the various shows that I talk about on podcasts. And so um, I haven't gotten really deep into it on this in my Buffy rewatch, but I think what I genuinely, what I generally point out is whether or not I recognize, was that Sarah Michelle Gellar or was that her stunt double? <laughs> yeah, um, I have moments too. <laughs> and it, this fight sequence stands out to me because um, actually this one and the one in that we'll get to in harsh light of day when she's fighting um, spike at the end, both of those fight sequences, I think are really, really good. And, and maybe it's just season four. Maybe they've gotten better going forward. I don't know. I'll, I'll rediscover that as I go, but um, there are a lot of shots where 
um, it's probably not Sarah Michelle Gellar because it is really it's it's sort of clearly stunt work that's going on, but yeah. um, but it doesn't feel as clumsy like the attempts that they make to conceal the the stunt actor don't seem as clumsy as they have in past episodes. So yeah, I was thinking about that in Harsh Light today too. Like I think that one's choreographed really well, and it's a great fight too. Yeah. Um. Uh, but yeah, yeah. physicality, the rolling around, like it, it's, there aren't those like blatant moments where it's like, oh, that's not Sarah Michelle Geller. <laughs> and and <laughs> there's also, that. and there also aren't moments where, uh, I don't know, they found, they found the right mix of the camera lingers just long enough to make it seem like maybe that's Sarah Michelle Geller, but not long enough for you to say, no, it's not, it's, it's really, it really isn't. That's a thing. Um, <laughs> up to this point i feel like it's either there are too many static shots of the stunt double just standing there facing the camera <laughs> catching her breath and you're like yeah not even close uh and and too many uh mtv rapid fire edits <laughs> but uh yeah, anyways th- those two fight sequences in particular i thought were done really really well yeah and and when she takes down so i'm also sad to see sunday go uh as quickly as she does but it does give us the sort of iconic uh, Buffy twirling the stake scene. Yeah. Yeah. Which is then the like punctuation on the credits, I think from here on out, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. I think it replaces the, uh, the shot of her with the hungamanga, the, the weird multi-bladed thing from season two. Yeah. Yeah. I can't remember if that shot is still in it, but for, I feel like that was sort of the closing shot of the credits previously and now it's the the gunslinger move that she does with her stake <laughs> and it is cool it, it is cool she looks badass it is super cool <laughs> um okay xander xander comes back i mean we we've i was gonna say we've <laughs> talked about everybody but we really haven't we haven't said much about oz but anyway xander is back and uh what'd you think about <laughs> how they integrated him back into the story without uh him being in college after he returns from his road trip to all 50 states. Yeah. <laughs> which was just a great line. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it's funny that because Xander's not part of the college crew, um, he's the one who's able to kind of rescue Buffy in that episode. He pulls her out of her, you know, sort of like uh, deep well of self-pity uh, and awkward feelings and he's like and he also has that great line where he's like Avengers assemble yes which you know <laughs> which is a great line and ironic since Joss Whedon would go on to do the Avengers and not use that line right and you have that moment at the end where Cap is like Avengers and you're like waiting for it and it doesn't happen yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> so, you know just I'm just frustrated over the course of 20 years but and I feel like at some point doesn't Riley isn't Riley called Captain America at some point Yes, he is. Okay. I think I think it may be Xander that calls him that. Um, All right. But I can't remember what episode. Um, but yeah, Xander is Xander is like, I, you know, not to be a Xander Harris apologist, <laughs> uh, because hating on Xander is also a really popular thing to to you know be part of these days. Guilty. Um, Guilty. <laughs> I know, and I was listening to you and and Mary Ellen and. Uh, one of the past episodes talk about Xander and kind of how he is problematic. And it's not that I don't see any of that, but Xander's also like, 
you know, he's human. He doesn't have any witchy powers. He's not a werewolf. He's not a vampire. He's he's doing the best he can, and he still like feels compelled, despite his you know frail countenance, to fight on the side of good and to try to help Buffy save the world, which I think is admirable. And we don't give him a whole lot of credit for that, even though he's like really a fish out of water. I, yeah, I, um, I mean, I, it's well-documented. If you've, if, if listeners, if you've heard previous episodes of this, you know, my feelings on Xander, they're, they're complicated. He used to be one of my favorites. And now on this revisit, I'm like, wow, it's a lot rough. Like this character is a lot rougher than I remember, but I don't actively hate Xander. I feel like maybe it comes across that way sometimes, but I don't, I, 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 Xander's fine. And I actually feel like in this episode in the freshman, so this season, I think famously, um, tries to establish Xander as like, they specifically code him as the heart of the team. That's a, that's a thing that becomes very explicit at a certain point in this season. And, uh, I feel like it's sometimes it's more successful than other than others. The, the coding him as that and having him actually play that role effectively. I feel like he suffers maybe more than the others from the sort of aimlessness of not of the college years, but not being a college student. I don't know. But in this episode, I think they start him off right. Like this episode, he you're right. Since he's not, in college and he's not uh, in the same trap that Buffy's in. He's the one that gets to, to be the heart. He's the one that gets to talk her out of her funk and sort of get her back on track. Like I, he, I was genuinely fond of, of everything that he did in, in this episode. <laughs> and he's so like eager to like be a part of it, you know? And I just, it, he, I, I don't know. I know Xander like really kind of, comes to represent a lot of like toxic masculinity, but like it, it's interesting to watch it now versus then because then it seemed much more part of culture. And now I feel like culturally we're more attuned to that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I would say this is a thing that I've get in trouble for often. Uh, fortunately I've avoided it. I think knock on wood, I've avoided <laughs> it on this podcast so far, but in my day-to-day life and on my other shows, I am often, I often walk myself uh, into the trap of trying to play devil's advocate more often maybe than I should and saying that, uh, yes, we are absolutely more attuned to that kind of stuff now. Uh, we, we are older and wiser and we're more able to notice the sort of problematic things that back in the 90s maybe or whatever were just sort of taken for granted, such as some of Xander's unintentional misogyny and homophobia and that kind of stuff. And I think that's great because it means we are moving forward, even if it's painful. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's great. Uh, but I, I occasionally will try to play devil's at ad- devil's at ad- that's not the right phrase, but occasionally I will say that is true. But I also think that sometimes we are, uh, we are hyper sensitive it's great to be sensitive to that it's great to be alert to that and aware of it and to look for that and to to recognize it in our past works and to not tolerate it in our future works and so on and so forth but i also think that 
there is a dark side to that awareness, and that is that we are sometimes hyper aware and we look for it in places where, or, or we are, you know, it's the princess and the pea thing. Right. Sometimes. Yeah, we get I, a little, yeah. a little too eager to point it out. Um, for, yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. <laughs> Anyways, I see. Uh, I don't want to get myself in trouble, so let's move on. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, I do want to ask why uh, Sunday and her mini. I, I adore Sunday. I love her. Her. Um, I guess we don't know if he was a surfer, but he kind of talked like a surfer, dude. I loved her. The like, Spicoli vampire. Yes, exactly. The Spicoli <laughs> vampire. I loved that guy. I wish he had lived too. But um, why did they not sort of black out that gigantic skylight? <laughs> why? Um, why are they living in a layer that has a massive window to the sky? Well, because otherwise Buffy couldn't dramatically plummet through it, obviously. Oh, obviously. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. And as soon as you see her laying on that, you know that's coming. So you're just waiting for it. That was um, a great scene. The way that <laughs> happened was great. The, the the physical comedy of that was beautiful. Yeah. And, and her like sort of like above everything, watching the action, commenting on it, um, totally reminds me of the crossover episode to Angel um, with harsh light of day, uh, where Spike is narrating, um, oh, God. angel, so uh, beautiful, kind of like removed, sort of like <clears throat> observational commentary. Yeah, episode one hundred and three in the dark, which is yeah. so so great. Um, <laughs> anyways, but that's for another podcast. It is for another podcast. I'm so sorry. Um, so the only other thing I think in the freshman that I wanted to point out was the, I have to, I have to assume unintentional um, foreshadowing of, uh. I can't wait till mom gets the bill for these books. I hope it's a funny aneurysm. That is a hilarious line. Unless you know. Yeah. Unless you're rewatching the series and then you just want to kind of like shrivel up and die a little. Oh, um. I, I had a weird out of body experience when I rewatched the episode and saw that line because I distinctly remembered thinking, Oh, that is, that's one of the all time funny lines and her delivery of it is great. But I'm like, Oh, that is brutal. Well, you know who wrote this episode? <laughs> yeah. The man himself. Yeah. The, the man that loves to be brutal and tear people's hearts out. So I, and, and you kind of have to wonder like, is this, did he know then that that was what was going to befall Joyce or you do kind of have to wonder, or I have to wonder since I wonder about everything. I am so convinced <laughs> that all of this stuff is intentional foreshadowing for stuff years down the line. Yeah. I mean, I, he is too intentional about things. He, I'm sure he had an outline of what was going to happen and, and maybe he is planting those seeds. Mm -hmm. So, um, I mean, I, yeah, I, I tend to not think it was an accident or well, accident or not I, I mean accidentally it's funny but really brutal uh if that was intentional damn son <laughs> joss yeah. that is that's cool turn the knife counterclockwise <laughs> exactly uh anyways so i guess moving on to living conditions <laughs> um Ugh, living conditions what do we got what do we got for this one hey everybody it's parker <laughs> It is welcome, welcome to the show, Parker Abrams. Uh, we'll see you three more times. Um, so I guess I might as well say I have I, not the same kind of controversial opinion 
that I have of Riley, or that we, I guess, have of Riley. But I have a, sl- I suppose, slightly controversial opinion of Parker Abrams. Ooh, bring it. Uh, my opinion of Parker Abrams is that um, he is, uh, this is another one of the sort of misdirects I feel like this show is capable of doing because it's entering a f- its fourth season. It has so much history behind it. We're so attuned to things now. Um, he's introduced uh, to the list of potential Buffy boys. Um, <laughs> uh, and because we have not only the history of these kind of characters often are minions of, or, or just outright monster of the week kind of guys. And we also have the history of her relationship with angel. Um, you're just, you're prepared for him to be a, a monster of the week. You're prepared for him to be like just outright evil or demonic or whatever. And my opinion of Parker Abrams is he's, he's a pretty standard uh actually probably not even the worst example definitely not the worst example of the standard college douche bro yep. kind of guy i mean he he's he's a, a just chad. <laughs> a, ch- a chad yes he he's just an obnoxious uh well i mean as buffy will eventually say he's uh he's manipulative and what does she say um where is it? He's manipulative and shallow. And why doesn't he want me? Why does he want me? Yeah. I mean, I mean, that is his crime. He's not, he's another character that I feel like gets a ton of hatred and I mean, it's fine. He's a worse character than Riley, but I just don't think he's the, the epitome of evil that the show is capable of giving us. Yeah. And it, it, it's nice too, that, you know, it, it's not till the next episode where she and Parker, you know, do the deed. Mm-hmm. So here we're just meeting him. And like she's having a moment of like getting to be excited about somebody, um, and I I sort of was surprised when he sort of gets written out as quickly as he did. I thought he would linger, but you know. Well, so how do you feel about him? Uh, this is skipping ahead to harsh light of day, which is fine. Yeah. Um, I and and I will admit I feel differently about this now at at forty which is what I, how old I am versus when I was 22, when I was watching this. Um, I don't think Parker is evil. I think he's, he's kind to Buffy. He is thoughtful to her. He brings her coffee, um, <laughs> you know, which, you know, in the world of college hookups, like is kind of impressive. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he's also like very careful to like get her consent uh, when they're making out, he's like, is this okay? And she's like, yes, you know, I'm making a choice. And so I think that that's actually admirable and unusual, uh, even in this show, sort of in general. Um, so yeah, I kind of don't have a problem with Parker. I think the problem is really sort of Buffy not knowing how to navigate relationships and not being careful to like make sure that expectations are, you know, sort of set down beforehand before, you know, notching the bedpost as it were. Um, this is fascinating. I love this, this idea, this read you have on, um, I, I completely agree with you. Um, <laughs> I, I just was a little more guarded, I guess. Um, but you're right. He is super, he, I, I mean, when she confronts him, I guess confront is even a little strong, but when she finds him, uh, macking on Katie Loomis, <laughs> um, like he says, she's like, I don't, I don't remember what her 
line is, but something about, uh, you know, what was this a hookup or whatever? I don't remember what he, she says, but he's like, well, what else, what else did, what you, did think? you think it was? Yeah, what else would, was it going to be or whatever? And he seems, he doesn't seem cruel in that moment. He seems sort of he's, genuinely he's bewildered. Yeah. He seems genuinely puzzled. Like everybody gets this. Why don't you, <laughs> whatever. So, I mean, he is a little bit manipulative. I mean, clearly he does. He was using the same lines on, on, uh, Katie that he used on Buffy, but right. You're absolutely right. He is much more, um, I, I think it's interesting that Willow and I, and Willow is playing the supportive best friend role here. And I, and I understand that the role of the supportive best friend is to, to cut down the person that hurt your friend. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I feel like the show in general tends to code things like characters who are mean to our hero as right. bad guys. And... and it's hard not to, you know, like, I remember thinking he was a bad guy when I initially watched this and like, oh, how could he do that to Buffy? But, it, you know, I'm reading that through the lens of like this sort of like tragic love story that Buffy has just extricated herself from with Angel. Mm -hmm. um, and so she's like, you know, we know she's like tender and this is kind of her first foray into the romantic realm after that. So, you know, after like the you know, iceberg that was angel in her life. Um, and it's like the second boy she sleeps with. So it, she's got like really high stakes and expectations built up around like, Hey, I'm going to sleep with a human and maybe it won't go terribly. Um, but she, they don't have that conversation or anything. She just sort of assumes all these things as to what the act means. And it doesn't mean the same thing to him. It does to her. And I don't think that you can necessarily fault Parker for that. I think it's unfair. By the way, jumping back to the freshman really quickly, uh, in in this the first angel free or mostly uh, angel free episode <laughs> or season, I should say, the very first shot of the entire season is an angel statue. Is Buffy walking away from an angel statue in the cemetery? Oh yeah, in the cemetery. <sighs> Anyways, probably didn't mean anything. Oh, I'm I mean, sure. he's he's a ghost over the entire season for sure. Yeah, uh, and there's that moment where the phone rings. Yes. Uh, and would you see like the tie-in for City of Angels or City of the yeah. first episode where he calls and doesn't speak? Which um, I want my listeners to help sort of track this with me or help keep me on track, I should say, since I have declared and redoubled down on my uh, commitment to do all of Buffy before I get into Angel. Um, obviously, <laughs> it's a spoiler show. I, I, we will talk about Angel while we're talking about Buffy. I'm not I don't want to hold us back from that, but I do want to kind of, I've added a section in my notes for every episode now of whether there is a crossover and what, what that crossover <laughs> is. So yeah, the timeline gets really conf like confusing to try to remember what happens when parallel yeah. to what's happening here. Like right now, I think it's, it's running pretty one-to-one, -one, um, but it does, they do start to, to space each other out a little bit and, and the, at any rate so yeah there was the phone that was the first official crossover was her uh picking up the phone and not hearing anybody on the other end yeah, and she thinks she sees him at the bronze which actually is like it which, is david Boreanaz. which it was him that blew my mind i had forgotten that they they sort of wimped out and actually had Boreanaz in the first episode <laughs> so, um and i couldn't find confirmation for this but i wanted that guy like like when her vision clears and it's not angel i wanted that guy to be uh his stunt double whose name i i famously can never remember the name of the stunt doubles but um, <laughs> but i have not found confirmation for that so i don't know if that's the case but 
Yeah. I don't know if that guy's even credited in yeah. episode. So also speaking of uncredited, since I've mentioned Katie Loomis a couple times, <laughs> <laughs> that drove me nuts. Uh, anyone who follows me on uh, or follows the uh, conversations with conversations with dead people group on Facebook saw me ask, who the heck is this actress? I know her. Like, I don't know. There's something about the way that character is framed in the shot. And it it felt like maybe that was an actress that we were supposed to know. And, and nobody knows who she is and I cannot yeah. find her anywhere online. So I, I don't recognize her completely made it up, but it still drives me crazy. However, speaking of actors we later recognize, I was excited uh, because, um, you know, I was born in the 90s and had a heart. Uh, I watched Dawson's Creek uh, and Parker Abrams, the, that character, shows up on Dawson's Creek. Uh, Are like you serious? Yeah, he's the um, guy that Jack kisses for the first time on air. You mean the actor or the character of Parker? The actor. Or... The okay, actor. Okay. <laughs> Not Parker himself. <laughs> oh man, for a second I thought there was there he a really sec- gets around. <laughs> was there a secret crossover between Dawson's Creek? Um no, I did not know that. I uh I I was in the nineties and I'd like to think that I had a heart, but I actually uh <laughs> never actually watched Dawson's Creek, which destroys my wife. She Well, it's a more at my demographic than yours. Well, so <laughs> I mean I was, I, I was, I was a mama's boy. I should have watched that show. I don't know why I didn't, but at any rate. That is a show that has aged much more poorly than Buffy has. Oh, really? Yeah. It, it like came on Hulu or something and I was like, I'll sit down and watch a couple episodes. And I was like, oh, this is terrible. Uh, <laughs> what was I thinking? <laughs> Whereas I don't feel that way at all when I rewatch Buffy now. Yeah. Uh, well, there's two more characters in Living Condition. I know we're bouncing all over the place, but there's two more characters that we obviously have to talk about. Um, the blink and you miss it one. We'll get that out of the way right now. Hey, everybody, it's Veruca. Yes. Um, and she's not even credited in the episode, but yeah. they must smell something wolfy. Yeah. I, I don't know. Is there passing? I, I just I'd completely forgotten that they sort of slow burned that character as much as they did, because uh, we're still four or five episodes I think away from of the show not the podcast uh from that reveal I think if I'm remembering correctly isn't yeah. it wi- isn't it wild at heart is that where yeah, yeah. and she's the worst um she is the worst. I- I'm on board with the hate for Ver- train <laughs> okay so. yeah I don't remember what my feelings are on her but I'm I'm pretty sure that I will be in the she's the worst camp oh um, and who is the other well the, the other obviously is dear sweet Kathy oh she's not long for this world either though (laughs) (laughs) she's not Uh, Dagny Kerr who's an I recognized that name and I think I looked her up and I was like yeah she's been in stuff but nothing I really watched so I don't know why I recognize her so much (laughs) um it you know and I feel like it says something about that episode in general that we've jumped around to talking about the other two instead of talking about it (laughs) (laughs) yeah living conditions isn't the best of these three um, and it's it, it, there's like a tendency for the second episode of the Buffy seasons to kind of be not terrible, but just kind of forgettable. Like yeah. um, season two is some assembly required, which, mm. you know, is mm. fine. Um, season three is Dead Man's Party. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of that, the I guess, the sophomore slump <laughs> for the season. Uh, coming after the freshman, which seems apropos. Well, wow, that makes sense. Makes sense. <laughs> um, uh, 
So what did you, I mean, what, what do you think about Kathy? Um, does, does she in fact deserve mime? Uh, nobody deserves mime Buffy. (laughs) Nobody deserves mime. It's a great Um, line. (laughs) Yeah. This episode is interesting in the idea of is Buffy just being cranky? Like as everybody points out, because Kathy's sucking her soul or just because Kathy really is that evil as a roommate. I mean, she does iron her jeans and listen to Cher incessantly. Um, <laughs> both which I find homicidal offenses. So. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. It's so the whole soul thing, the whole, the episode, the characters certainly try to rationalize Buffy's behavior as, oh, it's because she's having her soul sucked out of her body, which can we just, can we just say, can we just say the, the whole nightmare sequence of her having the scorpion on her stomach and all that, that's okay, fine, whatever. But the pouring blood down her throat, that was, I don't know. This is a show about vampires. I don't know why that squicked me out so much, but for some reason that really, I'm, I'm completely with Oz and Willow. Yeah. That's I'm raising my hand. That's the part I have a problem with right there. But anyways, um, I thought it was interesting too the idea that you could incrementally lose your soul. Like it's not a, it's not a, it, you you can piecemeal it out. It's not a all or nothing situation. It's, it's not a thing that is taken from you. It's like an energy or something. Um, yeah, but yeah, so this episode and the characters certainly, uh, they they certainly come down in that camp of oh she's having her soul she had her soul removed so that's why she is, um, so ag- aggressive or whatever. Um, I just saw this as another interesting application of the the series is vague at best parapsychology of the soul, um, <laughs> because as has frequently vexed me on this podcast and will continue to the end of the series. Um, it, it's so damnably inconsistent and um, can be applied differently. It, it's, it is a plot device and it bothers me that such a significant thing, a significant element of the series Bible, the series mythology um, can be played as, as uh, vaguely as they do, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting too, in that, you know, like when angel doesn't have his soul and he's angelus, he's evil. Right. Mm -hmm. But you get the feeling that Kathy without her soul, like we've met her already in the freshman. She didn't, I mean, she's quirky and she does have a fondness for Celine Dion that is worrisome, but (laughs) she doesn't particularly seem evil. Even when she, she's not, you know, necessarily stealing Buffy's soul for, um, she's just trying to hide mm-hmm. and like live her life and go to college because she's 3000 years old. Um, stop treating me like I'm 900. <laughs> right. So it's interesting. They're kind of like she, so she, they're a soulless race from mm-hmm. an alternate dimension, but they, none of the demons, the, the Moktagar demons, um, seem very evil without a soul. So I think it's interesting. It's just like, it seems a little inconsistent in terms of if the soul itself bestows evilness or goodness upon a person. I'm sure that there has been someone out there. Cause I, I'm, I am plagued by this devil's advocate thing inside me, even though 
I'm the one that raised this question of, damn it, what is a soul? What, <laughs> what does this all mean? I, I'm sure there are people that have said, well, it's different for humans. Like humans innately have a soul. So if you have your human soul taken away from you, that has a different effect on you than if you were a, a creature that naturally doesn't have a soul. I don't know. Still, <laughs> like I said uh, last week on the last episode of the podcast, I grew up as a doing role-playing games and, and digging down into the minutia of rules and, and charts and all that stuff. So I want this stuff spelled out. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> Uh, I, I usually love ambiguity and vagaries in my fiction, but for some reason, this particular one just drives me nuts. So, Well, because it's like one of the like fundamental rules of how the universe is supposed to function. Yeah. So without that, you're, there's like a loose sort of tendril flapping in the wind. And, and it is frequent. It's used as a weapon. This whole... <laughs> This whole debate or discussion or whatever is weaponized later on in the series once characters that I happen to be super fond of come into the picture and um, and fans get to use the, well, they don't have a soul, so they're evil, or they do have a soul, so they're good. <laughs> like, that, that whole argument becomes weaponized in the fandom eventually, and so I think, as I was saying earlier about being hypersensitive to stuff, uh, yeah, guilty, I guess. Yeah. But... Anyways, all right, so Kathy goes back. Kathy gets taken home. She's just a runaway. Her parents just come and get her and take her home. <laughs> Conveniently setting it up so that Buffy and Willow can move in together. Yeah, that is super convenient. But um, and Which, you know, is good in terms of, like, how they're going to save each other and they can, you know, sort of consolidate all the weaponry. Mm -hmm. um, but I do love the, the last shot of the episode where... <laughs> Um, <laughs> because she's had the thing with Kathy about all of her possessions and then uh, Willow takes a bite of her sandwich and the, the camera like does the like dun, 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 zoom in on Buffy's face like mm -hmm. squinting angrily um, so that's I do I do enjoy that very last moment I think it's really funny so I've, I was cackling <laughs> um, alright so harsh light of day let's get to the big one here oh man such a painful episode yeah I mean, it's beautiful, but it's Jane Espenson can write an episode. It's a and, treasure. Yeah, she pull pull those heartstrings. So, yeah. um, also delightfully, the introduction of Vampire Harmony. Yay! <laughs> Who I just love. Um, she's so absurd, uh, and I really am glad is... that she has bizarre longevity in the series. Yeah, I was going to say that is a joke that plays for a a very very long time to come. Yeah, and it was funny in in season four when this showed up when she shows up in this episode. I had forgotten that you see her bitten in graduation day, yeah, um, because it was so brief. And I was like, "Wait, what?" And like, I remember going back and like rewatching that episode and being like, "Oh, <laughs> okay." It's interesting. It's interesting that the um, that the characters in fiction the characters apparently didn't know that never noticed that because willow is like like willow says um she's back from her vacation or whatever uh <laughs> so they they didn't apparently see her get bitten or see her lifeless body on the ground during the fight um, yeah but the show expected us to because it never really explains away why she's a vampire all of a sudden so the show wanted the audience expected the audience to have remembered oh yeah she got bitten really briefly <laughs> really quickly uh but the other characters never knew that so 
and Buffy's response to finding out that Harmony is a vampire is just so classic. Like, you know, <laughs> she must be dying without a reflection. Yeah, that's great. Um, um, vamp, oh, vamp Harmony is so preposterous. <laughs> She's just, yeah, like you, but you genuinely like feel bad for her in this episode too. Like as ridiculous as she is, she does sort of like evoke this kind of pathetic, um, you, you just, you kind of feel for her, you know, you know, vampire sucks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I agree with you, but this brings up a very, very interesting. I feel like this is a one-off reaction, a, a one-off thing in just this episode. I don't think that this, uh, that I ever feel this way about the character again, but obviously this is jumping ahead just a little bit. Cause we haven't even talked about the fact that spike is here yet, but, um, there's a fascinating hint, uh, during like the harm seduces spike scene at the possibility that harmony could actually take some kind of power in the relationship because there are a few moments where she uh she stumbles upon and then maybe possibly even starts to seem starts to become savvy to her ability to manipulate him into doing what she wants Right. It's that weird sort of like um, dominant and submission power play between the two of them. Yeah. Like she re- she realizes all she has to do is trace the the outline of the veins on her chest or whatever, and he'll stop yelling at her and he'll come over and have sex with her. Like there are a couple times where that happens where she seems just slightly more cognizant of what she's doing and Spike seems less in control. And uh, I thought that was fascinating because I never, ever think of that dynamic between the two. Spike is always the controlling, abusive one, and Harmony is always the ridiculous, uh, submissive one. Yeah, but she has those moments where, you know, and I don't know if he's just like so delighted that he can shut her up. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe, maybe. (laughs) At least she's not talking about France. I do just wonder how the two of them ended up together. Like, what's the backstory there? (laughs) Yeah, I agree. Oh, I'm sure there's some fanfic that explains it all. <laughs> probably. It's probably in the comics somewhere. Damn those <laughs> damn those comics. Um, all right. Uh but so, the re- the rest of the episode. <laughs> yeah, Spike's back. Yes. Which is always always makes Sunnydale a more interesting place. Yes. Blondie Bear. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh. Oh. The pet names are just painful. Mm. Um yeah he's so good in this episode um so cruel and he's like attacking buffy from a place of hurt and buffy's attacking him from a place of hurt and it's just like wow especially in retrospect like i know where this is headed you're actually just flirting with each other yeah Um, (laughs) so i i have this i was having this really surprising reaction to spike popping back up obviously i knew this was coming i adore spike he's in my top three weedenverse characters um, Likewise. Uh, but I just, I found myself having this weird. So, like, on the one hand, one of my most favorite characters. But there's a ton of stuff coming up with this character. Stuff that I can't imagine the series without. Uh, but it brings a lot of bag. There's a lot of baggage that comes along with it. <laughs> like, I was, I was talking about the whole weaponized debate that's eventually coming in the fandom. Um, I just very briefly had a. It was it was super brief, almost too brief to talk about. I should edit this out, but I just very briefly had a thought of 
it kind of went like, yay, Spike's back. Oh, man, that means all that stuff is still going to (laughs) happen. So (laughs) I'm ashamed. I'm so sorry, Spike. Please forgive me. I still love you. But I I just had a moment of, damn it, the the awkwardness is going to happen. Yeah, it's coming. And and yeah, I, I, I do know what you mean, because it's hard not to, especially here before he's neutered or whatever by the chip. Um, when he's still really just sort of his evil trying to kill the Slayer self. Mm-hmm. Um, you're like, oh, yeah, I know where we're going. Yeah, there's there's the... <laughs> and it's not fun. No, no. The uh, There's the scene when... Um, I forgot his name all of a sudden. Parker. When Parker's like, <laughs> so did you guys ever? And Buffy laughs hysterically at, at even the <laughs> suggestion that she had ever, quote unquote, dated Spike. Um, but here's another opportunity for me to get myself in trouble with listeners. I'm just daring people to, to write. I, somebody other than Tammy needs to write on the, (laughs) in the message board. Um, it's, he is the guy that knows her. I was, I was about to say best. And I know I would get pushback on that. He's the guy that knows her the longest. So, so, guess where i'm going with this is buffy keeps getting romantically involved with guys that either haven't known her that long and i would actually include angel on that list angel knew her from a distance i guess much longer than she did but in terms of yeah like a big creeper yeah exactly in terms of them as a couple face to face getting all smoochy and mashing their bits together that was super quick that was a short time uh for that powerful level of of uh of romance to build up and then she's got parker who she only knows for a day or two before she sleeps with him uh i mean riley (laughs) she doesn't know that long so she keeps getting involved with these guys that either haven't known her that long or because of circumstances really are actually never going to get to know her and when the time comes when we get there Spike is actually the guy that's been around. I mean, I'm setting myself up for all sorts of pushback, but Spike is the guy that has has been around sort of physically in her world longer than really any of the rest of them. In in you know, to that point, he gets what drives her too. Mm-hmm. Like in a way that these other guys don't. Like you know, she has some fun with Riley and gets stuck in the, you know, sex house forever or whatever. Um, <laughs> right. God, I've <laughs> forgotten about that. Oh, Lord. <laughs> uh, which has like my favorite like end button of that episode. Um, but <laughs> but but Spike understands her motivations in a way that none of the other guys she's with do. Um, if If only because he's been kind of watching her for so long and he saw like how wrecked she was with Angel and had the benefit of like Angelus, you know, telling him all about mm-hmm. their bizarre relationship and um, which gives Spike the, the currency to get some real zingers in, in this episode. Yeah, it is. Yeah. As, as, as someone who often feels like a Spike defender, he doesn't really need a defender. He has so many fans, but I sometimes feel like I am, am sticking up for Spike. Um, that final fight scene was a little bit rough to watch. <laughs> I was like, man, he is being super cruel to her. Yeah. And he is wailing on her and it's, it's weird to watch. Um, 
her be so sort of like depowered in that moment. And it's not until he delivers the like real zinger that she kind of like About comes Angel. back. Yeah. And, you know, whips him back. Yeah. Um, one of the things I think is interesting in this episode, like with Spike and Harmony um, in bed together and then versus like Parker, like I, another reason, like I could kind of guess that Parker wasn't going to stick around as a character. Um, Spike is like super objectified by the camera in this episode. <laughs> I feel like that's a thing that goes on for the rest yeah. of his career on the show. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. And you know, I, um, am a shallow person and I, I mean, it's, it's fine. It's fine. <laughs> um, but Parker is absolutely not objectified in any way. Yeah. Um, I don't even know if we get like a shirtless shot. Of I don't think we ever see him. We get like a little shoulder maybe, but, yeah. um, but like all the guys that stick around in the show do sort of like have that moment of like being objectified by the camera. Um, and we don't get that with Parker. So you're like, Oh, we're not visually developing his character in a way that lets me think he's going to have like a lot of longevity. Yeah. Good point. <laughs> good point. Um, let's see. What else do we have? Uh, we get the first appearance of Xander's basement, uh, apartment and the reappearance of Anya in it. Yes. It's still, it's still weird to see Anya with this look. I don't, I, my mental picture of Anya is, I guess, from later seasons where she's got, I think she goes blonde, right? Doesn't she? Yeah. The much lighter hair. The, this, this is a really dark hair year. Yeah. She's got the shorter hair and the blonder hair. And, and yeah, so she looks again, I'm a little bit uncomfortable that I ever made this, uh, this connection. Cause I can't tell if I'm making it up and if I'm not making it up, it's a little bit troubling, but she's a little bit coded as the Cordy replacement. Mm. Interesting thought, which we've also like, just pretend that Cordy's dead. Like, I know. No one even we mentions. shall never speak of her again. <laughs> no one even mentions the fact that Cordy's not around. They, they, they do mention her name because in uh, living conditions, uh, Willow says, we all agree that she's being almost Cordy like right now. Right. <laughs> Yeah, that's true. But, uh... um, but <laughs> yeah, um, she does kind of fill, and she fills that role too, like where Cordy was the one who would say the dumb or kind of like obnoxious thing. Mm -hmm. Like, although Anya's coming from it, coming at that from like a different perspective because she just doesn't understand human interaction, um, she's still sort of filling that same role in the group this season. Um, with kind of like the like sort of antagonist yet ally mm -hmm. weird. Yeah. They were both, they were both the inappropriate characters, but Cordelia's was out of a place of uh, like intentional snark or whatever. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and Anya's is from naivete, I guess. Yeah. But uh, I love the scene when she walks into, uh, Giles's apartment. She's like, I need to talk to Xander. Leave. She looks at Giles. She's like, leave. And I also love the fact that Giles doesn't even flinch. Like, Giles, like we don't even get Giles looking put out by her saying that. He just stands there with his arms crossed and doesn't doesn't even for a second consider that he's going to leave. So yeah. And then when she shows back up in the basement and and uh, she's like, we need to have intercourse. <laughs> And the great scene that does show up in the in the credits where Xander squeezes the juice box. Yeah, 
yeah <laughs> the the premature spraying of his <laughs> what was it uh cran cran, cran apple, apple. Cran apple. <laughs> yeah. um so there's a xander thing and this is uh again i don't think any of these three episodes are particularly bad examples of xander doing thing you know i don't think xander needs to be taken down for anything in these three episodes let's put it that way um but he does have a line there that i'm sure some people probably groaned at and it's it's when she's talking about sexual intercourse and he's like uh sex, sexual you know what you're talking about well and i'm actually turning into a woman as i say this but it's about <laughs> expressing something and accepting consequences so on the one hand you're like well, this is cool. Xander obviously is kind of learning something like he, Xander is growing a little bit, but he still has to get that line in. <laughs> he, still, yeah. he still has to be a 90s teenage boy where he's like, I know it's super girly to say this, but. Yeah. And, you know, I, I'm just not a person who really gets too bent out of shape out of that over that stuff. Well, like, that's I that's awesome. I can be critical about it, but I, you know, whatever. It was the nineties. It was a different time. Um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> well, that, that is awesome because I, yeah, I'm frequently taken to task for not getting more bent out of shape <laughs> about that stuff. So, um, yeah. and you know, it's funny, like, so this is an episode where we have the three, three couples coupling, mm -hmm. uh, in the biblical sense. Um, cause you have, uh, Xander and Anya, uh, going at it as it were but it's interesting like the dynamics between all three of these couples and how it's like i don't know it's just interesting to like contrast those three yeah they're all all three of them are con contrasted scenes i should i should have rewatched it again before talking because i i should have gone back and looked to see if to see how often this played out but I know for a fact that often scenes of one couple would transition into scenes of, an, of another couple, but I don't, I was going to say, I don't know if that always happened. I don't think, uh, I, I don't think remember. every scene was a transition from one relationship to another, but it certainly, there were times where that certainly did happen. They were obviously making parallels between the three, which is made explicit by the fact that the final shot of the entire episode is the three women who have been hurt, damaged and confused by love wandering the campus at night. Yeah. Which is a great shot. Um, although it sort of reminds me of the superheroes number in Rocky Horror Picture Show. Um, it's like the Which is one of my favorite songs from that. <laughs> I always love going to see Rocky Horror and then at the end you're like, Oh, I forget that this really ends on a downer note. Yeah. Um <laughs> and it's three in the morning. Um <laughs> Exactly. Um, but um the other thing like about Xander and Anya where he has that callback moment to faith where he says like and the funny thing is still more romantic than faith yeah um and you know he had like a really traumatic first sexual experience mm -hmm. um where she just sort of like uses him and tosses him so i, I feel like we can give xander a pass on his like extreme awkwardness in this encounter especially with the extremely forthright anya mm -hmm. um would be a little off-putting for anyone so I'm not I'm not troubled by his behavior necessarily, but maybe I'm a maybe I'm a bad feminist. <laughs> Stop. No, wait, you, you're at, you are absolutely coming back on the show and we're going to have a deeper conversation about that because, yeah, that's a conversation <laughs> that has to happen. Um, I want to ask 
Uh, I'm scrolling through my notes here. Oh, what the heck are those weird little feather pasty things that Harmony had stuck to her neck? Did you notice those? Yes. So I remember those necklaces. They were like, it's like fishing line. Okay. Um, so there was a like necklace little there. feathers attached to it, um, which does not play well on camera. Okay. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I couldn't see a necklace at all. I thought they were just, at first I thought it was stuff sticking out of her neck. And then I was like, no, it's gotta be just like a, something <laughs> she stuck onto her. And I was like, what? I don't get it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was, it was not the best costuming choice. Um, so um, let's see. I love syphilis more than you. There are some great lines in this, even if they come, uh, even if they are Spike being <laughs> a bad guy, but oh. still, that's a great line. Yeah. I, my favorite of his is the, I can't wait to see if I freckle. Yes. Um, yes. <laughs> once he gets the gem of Amara, um, so, which is such a like lovely plot. It's, it's some, some great, uh, Oh, what's the, what do they call it in Dr. In Dr. Horrible? The, uh, mm, I don't know where you're going. Ah, just like the weird item. That's a total plot device. <laughs> like, oh, MacGuffin. Yeah. But in, in Dr. Horrible, it's the flotinium. What is it? Oh, day. I, it's been way too long since I've seen that. I don't remember. I don't remember. <laughs> yeah. It's been a minute. Sorry. Um, so let's see. Yeah. Uh, I, I laughed my butt off at the scene when uh, all the minion, all Spike's minion vamps sort of groan and wander off mumbling to each other when <laughs> Harmony comes up to start complaining that Spike isn't ever taking her to Paris. <laughs> that was she great. She really undermines his authority. Yeah, that was. In front of his minions. That was great. And then that, of course, leads into his whole thing about, you know, I came, the, the gem's what's important. I came back to Sunnydale for it, a place which has witnessed some truly spectacular kickings of my ass. And we'll witness some more. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're not done. And then his line, his next line is "Love hurts, baby." And my note here is, "Oh, Spike, you may be onto something there. <laughs> if only you knew, son." Yeah, yeah, um, um, yeah. And then when he finally confronts Buffy in the in the sunlight, um, it's just it's such a good scene. Yeah. <laughs> it's played really well. They're both like kind of really on their game. The fight choreography in that scene is cr is great. Um, my only beef with it, and I know you've mentioned this in a couple places, um, it's a truly bad vamp face transition. <laughs> I mean, sometimes they're better than others, but yeah, yeah and that was, one wasn't and good. It, and it's so like the center of the entire shot and it just did not look fantastic. I mean, uh, maybe I'm sure it doesn't help that the it's like the first time we get a vamp face transition in full sunlight, but right. You can't hide it, cloak it in shadows. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. It was, it was, it was not great, <laughs> but yeah, that fight, um, w which we were referencing earlier, that not only is the choreography of that fight, just straight up brutal. Also, that's a moment where, um, Xander rushes in to help, which I thought was, I don't know. I, I don't, weird, but I'm not sure why it, it was weird because, he he seriously could have died there. Like there are so many times in this show where Willow and, and Xander and Oz or whatever will help Buffy in a fight and, and they'll hold their own. And you never seriously think that one of them is going to get like actually injured. But for some reason, when I saw Xander running up behind Spike, I was like, I don't know, maybe it's just the ferocity of the fight between those two in particular. Yeah. 
and and just knowing that Spike would not for a second hesitate to just pull Xander's head right off his shoulders. Yeah, until later when they kind of like develop feelings for one another I secretly. Mean, <laughs> I mean, yeah, there's the whole there's the whole basement apartment thing um, <laughs> that happens, but anyways. So But it's part of Xander. I mean, he's often selfless in a way that yeah. I think people forget. Yeah. Um, no, I'm not saying he was well, I mean, he was dumb for doing that, but he was dumb in the right way. <laughs> he was dumb in the right way. Right. Um, but so not only is just the fight itself like physically it's it's brutal and intense but yeah as as we were mentioning uh but spike is like his dialogue in that when he's talking about uh so you gave it up for the college boy or whatever i didn't think you guys were that close what did it take to part the slayer's dimpled knees or whatever that whole dialogue i was like dang dang um and that's like that's that like i could totally see the later echoes of that sort of monologue in the Avengers when Loki's talking to yeah. Black Widow while he's in the cage. In the cell, yeah. yeah. Um like Whedon's good at putting those kind of like really painful monologues in. Yeah. <laughs> or um, just sort of destroys somebody. Um yeah. So let's see, what else have I got here? Oh, speaking of transitions from one scene to another, um, this one featured, and speaking of Xander, this one featured the scene when Parker was asking Buffy if she wanted to go to the party. Um, As that scene is fading out, the dialogue from the next scene plays over it. And that dialogue is Xander saying, I'm not enjoying this. (laughs) So I just thought it was funny that we get to hear Xander say, I'm not enjoying this because Buffy's being asked out by a boy. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> oh, his, his poor, just non-dying crush on Buffy. Yeah. Um, let's see. What else, what else have you got? What else have I got? Um, I love that uh, we, we learned the detail that Drusilla left Spike for fungus demon. <laughs> right. He he won't stop talking about it, (laughs) which you know is is terrible and everything. Um, I mean it's funny, but and and we get to see in flashback later. Yeah, but you see, he's hurt, and he really enjoys taking that out on Buffy. And you know she's hurt from what happened with Parker, so she's dishing it right back, um, which just sort of plays out interestingly if you put your future goggles on for what happens like how they you know are using each other to like kind of sublimate this anger but then later they're using each other to sublimate anger as well just differently yeah and a lot of other stuff yeah Yeah. (laughs) um i guess that i mean that's all the big stuff i think um i mean we find out that giles has a tv he's shallow like us so that's (laughs) that's always good yeah poor i i keep I, I had forgotten, like, it's a little later that Giles finally buys the magic shop. Um, I mm-hmm. forgot how bad he is at sort of being listless. <laughs> he keeps jogging. <laughs> He's very sweaty. Um, yeah, and then you have that whole, like, thing of Buffy trying to have be a slayer and live a life and then getting distracted from slayer slayerdom by the fallout from having that life. Yeah. Which is a repeated theme that we see a lot. Um, so, yeah, I, I really, I love this episode. I think it's, 
great. It's we also see the um the initiative in this episode. Sort of unexpected. Yeah, we we I think we see them we at least glimpse them in all three of these episodes, I think, and we haven't mentioned them. We haven't said anything about who are these weird soldiers running around on campus. And a fine question it is. Um, it's totally unexplained at this point, but it's like, but the other thing I wonder about this campus, like particularly in this fight scene in Harsh Light of Day, like where are all the people? <laughs> like, in all the other establishing scenes for it is the super crowded on yeah campus, it's super crowded and then suddenly when buffy and spike are wailing on each other it's like there's just a lamppost um yeah <laughs> where is everybody that is a good question uh i had a question i had, i had two questions actually involving vampire bites one is in harsh light of day i think it's harsh light of day where it happens we get to see for the for the first time, Buffy has a a scar on her neck from when uh, Angel fed off of her. The angry puppy. The angry puppy. Uh, that scar was not there in the first two episodes. That scar has never been there before. I'm, I don't know that it's ever there again. I don't think it's ever there again, which, okay, healer slaying or healer slaying. Yeah. <laughs> Words are hard. Slayer healing. I'm sure we could explain it away. It gradually dissolves the scar, but um yeah, that wasn't there in the first two episodes of the season. Why is it suddenly there in episode three? And then my next question about a vampire bite is the scene at the party when um, they, when Buffy and Parker, man, I may not have a problem with him, but I can't remember his name, when they bump into Harmony and Spike. Right, and, holding and the guy who... Holding the guy. And like Spike throws that guy at Parker and they all run off and Buffy's like, stay here. So Parker stayed behind with the guy who had a gaping wound in his throat. <laughs> and that's never mentioned again. But is that suspicious? I, I don't what kind of, Are you not going to the right kind of parties? I don't know. Oh, I guess it was just that kind of, I mean, the name of the party was, uh, nobody gets was, out alive. I think is what that said on the sign out front of the party. And it was at Wolf house. Wolf house. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, a little foreshadowing. <sighs> Anyways, just some of those fun little nitpicks. <laughs> I have at the show from time to time. Yeah. Um, but I, I do think like, you know, uh, living conditions. Nah. Yeah. It's not, it's, it's no beer bad. Um, I can't, I cannot, I legitimately cannot wait to get to beer bad because it has <laughs> such a reputation and I don't remember if I liked it or hated it. It so. is pretty much universally reviled. So I'm looking forward to listening to that episode, to be honest. <laughs> oh man um but but yeah the living conditions is is not that but it's not a, a fabulous episode but i really love the freshmen mm -hmm. uh, and then i love harsh light today i think they're both really strong and especially for kind of setting the tone for this new era of the show and like expanding sort of the diegetic world of you know how large we can now like decide sunnydale is like sunnydale has a new station because the the um highway collapses because right. spikes tunneling under it um which is like oh wow they made the news like sunnydale's not tiny so um, <laughs> there's that like bizarre sort of expansion of how big the town actually is um it's like it's like souls it changes from episode <laughs> to episode the size right. of sunnydale is plot dependent and the uh the age group hanging out of the bronze is now 
adult instead of yeah that was that was interesting (laughs) our characters go to college and now all of a sudden it's all college kids hanging out at the bronze yeah we can we can just make a new club i don't know (laughs) oh well i suppose it's possible there were always college kids at the bronze we just only paid attention to the high school kids yeah because the bronze the bronze served alcohol right because i remember uh, yeah, because they all get drunk at some point, I think. Yeah, because Anya actually, in an episode, tried to buy alcohol, and he was like, ID, and she's like, I'm a thousand years old, just give me a beer. <laughs> um, so yeah, I guess it's possible college students always went, and we just didn't pay attention to that, but I did have that thought. I was like, oh, the Bronze is a college club now, okay. <laughs> yeah, whatever, you know, generic hangout place. Yeah. So, it's, plus, it, you couldn't change the name of the the bronze because it was the message board so I, I know i was just about to say it's interesting that they changed basically everything else but we kept the same hang we kept the same club they couldn't make a brand new club for the show but you're right it's the it's because of the posting board yeah. which um, you were you part of that i was not okay. um and i like i do remember it and i remember lurking on it but i was never a poster on it um and i didn't follow it religiously because i was in school and trying to like you know yeah make plays happen (laughs) yeah my uh my internet access was spotty at the time and i hadn't really kind of made my presence known so i think maybe i checked it out a couple times but i never ever i was never a a presence there so Yeah. Um, and then this too, like Harsh Light of Day is the crossover episode with In the Dark mm-hmm. for Angel, um, which is the best Spike. Which has well. one of the all-time greatest Spike monologues. <laughs> it's truly epic. And there, um, and there are many good Spike monologues. <laughs> but I just love that, like, conven- the plot convenience of Oz is like, his band has a gig in L.A. He can drop the, the yeah. ring off to Angel. Um, so. Yeah. Hint, hint, guys. Which an <laughs> interesting on Angel. Yeah, another interesting thing. Well, okay, two things. First of all, I'll mention. Uh, I, I guess this counts maybe as growth in Xander, although it's short lived because I think he, in the future, he continues to be anti Angel. But there's the scene when she, uh, says, "No, we're not going to destroy the ring," and everyone is gradually figuring out, "Oh, she's about to give it to Angel." And Willow has to explain that to Xander. She's like, she's going to give it to Angel. Don't make a big deal out of it or whatever. And he, he, don't make a fuss. fuss. And he, you know, just kind of, I mean, he doesn't look like he's super happy about it, but he doesn't make a fuss. And I feel like previously Xander probably would have had a snarky comment about that. Although, Um, like, how do they not know that by sending the ring to Angel, they're just, like, making Angel a target? (laughs) I don't know. Thought through very well. But, but no, so the other connection I was, I didn't make until just this very second is we're talking about in that Angel episode, it features uh, the great Spike monologue. That Spike monologue is so great because it is Spike being just maliciously cruel to to angel he's providing a voiceover for angel and it is hilariously brutal the nancy boy hair gel he likes yes yeah oh god it's so great um so this episode crosses over with that but this episode also gets a dig in at angel so the whedon verse at this point by the third episode of each of these shows respective seasons this year the show is 
making <laughs> making it explicit, it is okay to tease Angel at this point. <laughs> because in this one we get I think it's Parker that says the line, Don't you just hate guys who are all I'm dark and brooding, so give me love. <laughs> and Buffy claims to have not known anyone. No, I don't like think that. I've ever met anyone like that. Right. Whatever, Buffy, that's your type. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. Um yeah, I hadn't realized both of these episodes feature I mean Parker's no spike obviously <laughs> but he does get a little dig in at Angel there yeah um and we will see Parker again he comes back mm-hmm. uh, I think beer bad right isn't that yeah to to get his head clubbed in and beer bad yeah uh, he gets a little bit of her comeuppance I guess um because she feels wronged which is maybe misplaced mm-hmm. again unpopular opinions yeah, we'll see. I don't. I, at this point, I 100% agree with you. I don't. I don't remember if he does anything particularly obnoxious in Beer Bad that deserve that. You know, he deserves being clubbed upside the head for. I I genuinely don't remember. I don't think he does. But. Uh, I honestly, it's um one of the episodes I think I only saw in broadcast. I think when I've rewatched, <laughs> I've skipped it each time. Um, so yeah. Yeah, fun with that one. <laughs> I'm looking forward to it. Looking yeah, I'll rewatch it. it before your episode about it. So. Oh, you are going to rewatch it. Wow, that's yeah. not, that's dedication. Well, you know, I, I don't. You don't have to. I don't expect it. I don't expect well. people to suffer for this podcast. <laughs> I'm curious to see, like, you know, having skipped it and remembering it so unfondly. Yeah. Uh, what has time done to that particular episode? So. We shall see. That's next week. Um, so that's all I had. Um, I don't know. Is there anything that we've missed? Anything you wanted to mention we didn't get to? Um, the only thing that I have marked that we didn't mention in The Freshman is the uh, sort of sideways criticism of The Phantom Menace. Oh, uh, <laughs> with uh, Xander messing up that line? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because I just hate that movie so much. Amen. Uh, and Amen. love that it they got a little dig in about that. So. <laughs> uh, yeah. Don't, please, don't, be, don't be Yoda, Xander. <laughs> don't try to be Yoda, please. Um, yeah. All right. So I think that's it. Uh, this was great. Thank you so much for yeah, for joining me and for being so eloquent and for uh, also not despising Riley. <laughs> if you need an unpopular opinion, let me know. I can provide them. I just I have them. I've collected them, and I have them. You can just dish them out when you need them. Excellent. You have a notebook full of unpopular opinions. Yep. Sweet. Yep. That's what I've how I've cultivated my personality. Actually. Excellent. Uh, well, I have at least one other uh, regular podcast. You would be great on then, because my co-host on uh, on that and I we we throw unpopular opinions at each other like daggers all the time. So, <laughs> anyways, um, Stephanie, thank you for being here. I always give my guests an opportunity to out themselves to the public if you want to be stalked or followed online. Um, oh, I am out and proud. Uh... You can find me on Twitter at PainsThe, P-A-I-N-S-T-H-E-E. Um, everybody's like, wow, you're so goth. And it's actually <laughs> an anagram of Stephanie. Um, so. I did not know that. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, that's uh, that's where I hang out. Um, my Facebook is kind of locked down so that my students cannot find me. Oh, uh, okay. 
So, um, yeah, Twitter is a good place to, to look for me. Cool. Uh, all right. And, uh, Everybody listening at home, thank you for playing along. You can find links to this and all of our past episodes at the website, conswithdead.com. Or you can subscribe to the show on iTunes. And while you're there, please rate us or write us a review. A couple of people got on the Buffy train before I did, or the Buffy podcast train anyways. And uh, they're really good. They're really, really good. So if you could spare some kind words for this silly little show that I do. It would help me stand out from the crowd. Um, if you've got questions for me or any of my guests, or if you'd just like to share your thoughts on anything we've discussed, please join the conversation. You can drop us an email at conswithdead at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter at conswithdead, or reach out to us on the aforementioned Facebook group, Conversations with Conversations with Dead People. I'm so glad conversations is such an easy word to say. <laughs> Uh, next week, Melanie Scholar returns once again. Uh, 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 she's racking up the appearances on the show. She's joining me to discuss episodes 404, Fear Itself, 405, the desperately anticipated, the hotly anticipated Beer Bad, <laughs> and 406, Wild at Heart. I suspect one or both of us might be drunk before the episode is over. So <laughs> tune in for that. Until then, Gur Arg, everybody. Gur Arg. Oh.